Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. We have a little bit of a special edition here today based on the hostage situation that occurred in Hollyville, Texas. And we're going to talk about, we have an expert today on hostage negotiation, retired Lieutenant Jack Cambria from the NYPD. When necessary, and we love to have our own on our show. Let me put my headphones on. I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. We love to have our own on our show to uh, give their expertise. And today we have one of the best in the world on hostage negotiation. We have uh, retired NYPD Lieutenant Jack Cambria. And with me today, like on most days, is my co-host straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. I'm excited that we got the uh, the guy that wrote the book on hostage negotiation, no, basically. We got, we got an expert on uh, hostage negotiation. Absolutely. Good to have you, Jack. Well, folks, we're going to be back in a second after we play our Police Off the Cuff theme song, and we're going to be Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This uh, case started out as this man on the screen, Malik Akram. He went into the uh, synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, and he, he took four people hostages. It was, allegedly, he was armed with a handgun. His name is Malik Faisal Akram, and he was identified by the FBI on Sunday. Um, one of the hostage take, hostages taken was the, uh, the temple's uh, rabbi. And the, the temple apparently is very friendly to people of all faiths and races, and they allow people to come in. They even gave this man tea and offered him shelter. And uh, he, he supposedly, he claimed that his sister was this, um, she was known as Miss Al-Qaeda, and her, and her name is uh, Afia Siddiqui. She's a Pakistani national known as Lady Al-Qaeda. She was convicted in 2010 by a New York City federal court of attempting to kill U.S. military personnel. She's currently serving an 86-year sentence at Coswell Air Force Base near Fort, Fort Worth, Texas, some 15 miles southwest of Colleyville. Now, it, its initial investigation determines that it is, in fact, not his sister. So if this, we don't know if this is, potentially Malik Akram has some mental health issues, but what we're really here today to do is to talk about the hostage negotiation end of this. And Jack Cambria is a retired, I believe, 34-year veteran of the NYPD, Jack? Correct, Bill, yeah. And he was the head of the hostage negotiation team for the NYPD. In fact, to this day, he goes all over the country teaching law enforcement personnel uh, about hostage negotiation. And, uh, Jack, I would just want to so welcome you to the show. I called you uh, just out of the blue, and you, you answered the call, which was fantastic. No, I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the uh, of the show, so I thank you for inviting me. And it's funny, Bill, you say that I, uh, you know, all over the country. Just this Friday, just two days ago, I returned Friday evening from Texas, out in wow. Texas, for teaching a five-day advanced class for hospice negotiators. So I, I, a couple of the students, uh, they already texted me, ah, what happened the day before? We could have had a field trip, you know, and went over there. So, uh, but yeah, so. When I'm well, yeah, you know, 
You know, Jack, potentially some of your students uh, could be the ones responding to these major jobs, whether it's with the FBI or a local police department, people that have learned from you. That's how education works, right? Yeah, you know, we pass on our knowledge. You know, I, I say I teach the classes that I teach to learn the classes that I teach. So each time I go into a class, uh, always something, something always comes out of it, a, a gem from another student, another negotiator in the class. And they say, you know, we did this one time. Like, oh, my gosh, I love it. So I kind of steal it. Not, not so much stealing it, but I, I, pass, and I, I take it and I pass it along to other classes, to other students as well. So maybe they can benefit from it, from it as well. That's perfectly permissible. You know, Phil, you told me that you have a bit of a timeline. Why don't you go into the timeline of what occurred during this, and then we can, Jack, talk about the hostage negotiation end of this. Yesterday morning in Texas, uh, Colleyville, Texas, about 10.30 a.m., uh, this uh, Malik Faisal Akram entered the, uh, the synagogue, I believe, a temple or a synagogue, uh, and he took four people hostage, including the rabbi. Uh, he was apparently armed with a, a handgun. Uh, there were reports earlier today that he purchased a handgun on the street. Uh, he's only been in the country a couple of weeks. He's a British citizen. Um, apparently, uh, it was being streamed, I guess, because of COVID on Facebook. Uh, people became uh, alarmed. Uh, obviously, law enforcement was notified immediately thereupon. And within a couple of hours of negotiation, one of the hostages was released. It sounds like possibly, I don't know this for a fact, but there was an exchange possibly of uh, some food, some pizza was brought in. Maybe they negotiated. That's one of the steps that's usually uh, talked about during hostage negotiation. Uh, you know, show us some goodwill. We'll send you some food. You release a hostage. I don't know if that's the case. May have been around 5 p.m. that hostage was released. And then later on in the evening, about four, four and a half hours later, there was some kind of a stir in, inside the location. Three of the uh, the last three remaining hostages ran out. When they ran out, uh, the, the subject ran back in. There was then an, uh, an interdiction by the law enforcement officers and uh, a flashbang was heard. Some shots were heard and apparently the uh, the subject was uh, was eliminated. We don't know for certain if he was killed by the police or if he uh, self-inflicted a gunshot to himself. But uh, he's the away. All of the hostages were safely removed and no one got hurt other than the subject. Now, uh, during the, uh, Billy already stated it, during the uh, negotiation, he was looking for the release of uh, Lady Al-Qaeda, uh, Afia Siddiqui, who was uh, sentenced to 83 years in jail based on uh, terrorism-related uh, stuff that took place in Afghanistan. She was an American citizen, uh, educated. She was uh, highly educated, actually. And then after 9-11, she was in fear that her children were going to be forced into Catholicism. So she went back to Afghanistan. She divorced her husband, and she wound up marrying uh, the uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the mastermind of the 9-11 uh, uh, terror attack, she married his nephew. So she was obviously indoctrinated. Uh, she became uh, very terror-oriented. She wanted to become a terrorist, apparently. And when she was arrested, she was found in possession of a flash drive that contained uh, information on how to do these uh, dirty bombs. Uh, sensitive locations in New York were also on that uh, flash drive. While she was being interrogated, she got a hold of a rifle. She started to uh, shoot at her, her captors, which were, uh, I believe, American military. And uh, I think she was actually injured during that uh, exchange of gunfire. Um, she was actually close by to the 
location where the hostages were taken yesterday at a military hospital. And uh, so let's get into the uh, the hostage negotiation part of it. You know, Jack, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and Bill uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, they released one of the hostages early and they brought them some pizza. That obviously was negotiated from the hostages. You, go, so you want to talk upon that? Yeah, so it was probably um, – we have something known in the hostage world as uh, PPA. PPA stands for Positive Police Actions. So we, we try to bargain that. We will, we will usually give before getting in return. And by giving before getting in return, what you're doing is building collateral. And by building collateral, at one point, you would look to make a withdrawal, like in a bank. Put money into the bank, at one point, you may look to make a withdrawal. That's what these PPAs are, positive police actions are. So probably, um, is it, you hungry? Would you want some pizzas? So uh, maybe they got a pizza, they got a, maybe water, whatever you know, LC might have wanted. And at one point, you know, there had to be a bargain. Look, we'll get you the pizza. This is what we did for you. We're not coming in. We're negotiating with you. We're not sending the SWAT team in. So what are you going to do for us? So probably that's how they might have gotten that one hostage out. I don't know that for a fact. But that's how kind of the process usually works. Now, I think everybody listening would, would agree that's got to be a very positive sign, uh, letting out a hostage. And the, the, the common thinking is if he let one hostage out, maybe he'll let another hostage out. Now, there might have been some, um, I heard one report on one of the news broadcasts that he might have had this the hostage that was released might have some ties to Islam or something to that effect. But again, that falls short of positive knowledge. That was one report that I heard. So maybe uh, that was his motivation also for letting this individual out. Yeah. So I would very much like to hear the interview when that ever should come up, if they allow that to happen of the hostages and, and see what they have to say about all this as well from the inside perspective. Sure. You know, Jack, besides a political ideology and dealing with, with, uh, hostage takers mm -hmm. this guy very well could have been an edp an yeah. emotionally disturbed person and that is one of the most common uh type of hostage takers that you deal with you want to talk upon that a bit yeah probably a majority of incidents that we got involved with in new york city uh was that it was the edp you might be surprised when i was doing this we averaged about 45 assignments per month and that was of uh, the hostage situations. Those are mostly domestic in nature. Uh, dispute between two parties, husband, wife, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, 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 or whatever it might have been. And it escalates to a higher level of now taking hostages. Usually there's alcohol involved, perhaps. Um, that's the first category of response that we would go to. The second one, and that was the most prevalent, were the EVPs. Barricades, withdrawing, barricades. And the barricades were broken down into two categories. First category was uh, the perp, the barricaded perp, the criminal that didn't want to be arrested with the detectives, um, like you, um, like like Phil would knock on the door. I'm not coming out. I'm not going back to jail. I'll shoot it out with the police before I come out. Okay, after the negotiator, we're going to talk to you. Then the second category of barricades was the EVP. Um, and those individuals, usually alone, but um, now we're acting out in a manner where they are no longer responsible for themselves. So now the police must become responsible for them. So we're going to talk to you as well. And then the third, third response type was uh, those of the suicidal jumpers. Uh, 
And if they were still standing when we responded, then we're going to try to rearrange their thinking process from what they want it to be to what we want it to be. Now, it should be noted that the average team, because I do teach all over the country, uh, the average response um, for the most of the teams throughout the United States is about, about 10 assignments per year. In New York City, we we're doing 45 a month when I was doing it. So just recently, I was speaking to the new commander of the hostage team. His name is uh, Lieutenant Michael Tomeo. And I said, Mike, how many assignments are you doing now? And he told me 65 assignments per month. And I said, really? I was doing 45. Yeah, he said, post George Floyd now, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, when emergency service responds to a scene, they have the negotiators now do their thing, when in the past, you know, they were a little more proactive. So they will go on hand, they will go hands-on if they must. Jack, could I just say something upon that? You, you know, cops now are afraid to put their hands on people. So you get one of these EDPs, say, in, inside Penn Station, and uh, instead of the cops just tackling the guy and bringing him to the ground, they're using the force that we used to use, they'll dance around him for a half hour or 45 minutes. And is that considered a high? I mean, that's ridiculous, but that's what they've they've made police be because they're afraid to use force. Yeah, and, and they don't get the support that they need anymore. You know, so it seems. So they don't want to, you know, delve in unless they have to, and they will absolutely do so if they must. They'll do their jobs. But you're right. It, now it's a little bit more of a process. You know, you know Jack, we have a couple of celebrities in the chat. and We got uh, former Yonkers Police Commissioner and NYPD Chief Eddie Hartnett. And he says, no oh one knows, <laughs> no one knows this stuff better than Jack Cambria. So well, uh, thank you. Thank you, guys, Chief. The Chief <laughs> was my, it was my CO in emergency service for, for many years. So uh, in fact, he brought me back to uh, emergency service. When I got promoted to, to sergeant, you have to leave. So I went over to the 72nd precinct uh, as a sergeant. And um, when he uh, was able to do so, he brought me back as a sergeant to uh he was my CEO in Intel. Uh, he, Chief Arnett was there when I was there as uh, as the chief of Intel. Uh, he's helped a lot of people. Yeah, he's helped a lot of people. Good man. Long. Good man. Chief. Great boy. You know, guys, if I may, I would just like to play a bit of a uh, a short uh, video uh, that was from the scene. It's from the, uh, the, the special agent in charge from the area covering uh, the hostage situation. Let's see what he has to has to say here. Thank you, Chief Miller. Again, my name is Matt DeSarno. I'm the special agent in charge of FBI Dallas. And I, I'm flanked today by uh, my federal partners from ATF, HSI, uh, DHS headquarters, Texas DPS, and Colleyville Police Department. So today's, uh, today's result, which was four safe hostages and the situation resolved, was really, uh, was really a result of, of a, a long, long day of hard work by nearly 200 law enforcement officers from across this region, local officers from across this region. As the chief mentioned, North Richland Hills, Trophy Club, Colleyville, obviously, uh, the FBI, ATF, HSI, and Texas DPS, who you see all over this town today. Uh, I'd like to highlight a couple things. You know, we used uh, the, the North Tarrant Regional SWAT team who, who started, uh, started the uh, engagement here in the morning, <clears throat> transitioned to the Dallas FBI SWAT team, and then ultimately to the hostage rescue team and the Dallas FBI SWAT team holding the perimeter. Uh, as Chief Miller said, uh, the FBI's hostage rescue team, I consider one of the crown jewels of our organization. Their, their mission is to conduct 
deliberate hostage rescues when necessary. In this, in this case, uh, we had a necessity for that, and they were successful. Very proud of them. I'm also extremely proud of the team of negotiators, FBI agents, and local police officers who worked all day long engaging this subject and likely saved the lives of the subjects just through their engagement. It's very likely this situation would have ended very badly early on in the day had we not had professional, consistent negotiation with the subject. Uh, I do not have any information right now that indicates that this is part of any kind of ongoing threat. We obviously are investigating. We'll continue to investigate uh, the, the hostage taker. We'll continue to investigate his contacts. Our investigation will have global reach. We have been in contact already with multiple FBI legats to include Tel Aviv and London. Uh, we've been working closely with Secure Community Network and the Jewish Federation, and uh, I want to continue to do that, and we will continue to do that uh, throughout the country. Uh, we, we, we do believe from our engagement with this subject that he was singularly focused on one issue, uh, and it was not specifically related to the Jewish community, uh, but we're continuing to work to find motive, and, and we will continue on that path. In terms of the resolution of the incident, uh, the, the hostage taker is deceased. Uh, we will conduct an independent investigation. My evidence response team will be here to process the scene, and a team from Washington will be here to conduct an independent investigation of the shooting incident. Uh, and, and that's the way we handle those things uh, through our normal uh, standard operating procedure. Uh, I, I will warn you before we take questions that uh, you may be frustrated at my inability to answer a whole lot of questions right now because of the, uh, the ongoing investigation and the shooting incident that occurred. But and I specifically will not answer specific questions about the subject. There's a lot of information out there already about the subject, and, and uh, we really don't don't want to uh, jeopardize any potential investigation or any investigative leads into uh, his motives or his potential associates. So uh, the FBI isn't going to uh, answer many questions, but my, the big thing I want to play that for is just the whole coordination there of the local, you know, equivalent of emergency service SWAT team. The FBI SWAT team, the ATF, all those guys were there. They're all uh, congratulating each other now, as they should. You know, they, they all did a great job. But, Jack, one of the things is that you got to figure out early on. I mean, look, you, you're going to talk this guy, talk to this guy for 10, 11 hours. So you have to have hostage negotiators that are ready to step in when one guy gets fatigued or one guy hits a wall. Or what if the hostage get the hostage taker? gets agitated and doesn't want to speak to that specific hostage negotiator anymore. Well, you're right, Bill. Uh, it is a team concept. It's a hostage negotiation team. This is a sidebar. The word uh, hostage negotiation team is the only unit in the entire NYPD that uses the word team in it. There's units, there's squads, there's bureaus, but it's only, used, uh, team, only a unit that uses the word team in its name. So there's a, it's a five-person team very quickly. So there's a team leader that would be that would be my job when I was you know working. Uh, then there's a primary negotiator. Only the primary negotiator speaks. There's a coach who uh, communicates with the primary negotiator by you know writing little notes and handing them off to the primary negotiator who has complete discretion as to whether or not he or she will use that. Then there's a the scribe. The scribe will be will make a chronological listing of events, significant events as they're going on because you might want to refer back to something later on. And then probably one of the most critical team members is the intel officer, intelligence officer, also known as the float, because they float around and they get information. And these are the ones, these are the uh, detectives that tell us why we are here today. You know, oftentimes uh, 
entering into a negotiation. It's kind of like entering into the middle of a movie, if you've ever done that. You want to take the family to the movie, you're running a few minutes late, uh, get in the car, you get some traffic, you get to the, the theater, the, you can't find a parking spot. Long and short of it, you get into the theater 20 minutes into the movie. And when you get into this, the movie, there's Superman lying on the ground. Oh my gosh, how did Superman get on the ground? Well, you don't know because you got there late. So you have to start backtracking and figuring it out. Same thing when negotiators get on the scene. So you get to the scene, the incident commander hands you this bomb that where the fuse is already lit, and they say, defuse this before it explodes. And you know what? Mostly we do. So the intel officer, the intelligence officer, finds out the information by interviewing family, friends, neighbors, working with the detective squads. Hey, can you run this name for me? And maybe checking camera surveillance, uh, interviewing first responding officers. And kind of puts it together for us. So the negotiator now has, or the team can start a strategy of how to best deal with this individual. And that strategy is ever changing. You know, uh, it might start out one way, but then you're getting new information and you might have to shift that strategy. So I would suggest that um, no, two negotiations, no, no two negotiations are ever exactly the same. Uh, each is tailor made specific, uh, specifically for that individual because no two problems are exactly the same. So we start out with the basics, active listening, trying to understand you know, the reason we are here. And uh, before you can look to solve a problem, you have to first identify that problem. And then you can start developing that strategy. You know, folks, this is um, retired NYPD Lieutenant Jack Cambria, oh, probably yeah. the most experienced hostage negotiation uh, negotiator in the nation. And well, he currently goes about the, the, the United States and the world teaching hostage negotiation. So what better man to come on this show after the Colleyville incident in Texas yesterday than Jack Cambria? I was lucky uh, that he uh, he listens to his voicemails and he picks up his phone because uh, here he is. And uh, I mean, I, I can't be more thrilled to have caught him. I actually went to a second string guy named James Shanahan. Was oh, a good buddy. He's a good buddy of mine. He didn't like to be called the second stringer, though, but he has a great no, sense no, of humor. Uh, I got my best stuff from James Shanahan. Uh, he's one of my mentors as well. Uh, if you're watching, James, hello. He's, he's fantastic. But anyway, you know, it's, there's so many questions with this is because the other part of who you are, which is very important in situations like this, is that you're a former emergency service man. And for folks outside of New York City, that's that's called SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. That's California. And in New York City, we call it emergency service. And they even have a saying in New York City, uh, when when the public needs help, <laughs> I hate this thing, but I have to say it because when the public needs help, they call the police. When the police needs help, and now you're going to hear, dun, 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 they call emergency service. Yeah, they do. They, do. <laughs> they should have that on their trucks. It should be that little saying, yeah. but they, they love, every emergency service cop loves that saying. Oh, yeah. When the, when the public needs help, they call the police. Yeah. When the police needs help, they call ESU. Yeah. <laughs> right? And the reason they call it service though, is because it's true. You'll go from one assignment going through a door in a high-risk warrant situation uh, with the guns, the machine guns, the helmets, the vests, the battering rams. The very next job, taking a cat out of the tree. That's so right. it's very diversified. So uh, we are emergency services on patrol, but not nine one one patrol. Uh, it's patrol responding to requests for service from police officers. I can't even begin to tell you over my years how many times I've climbed down sewers for police officers to retrieve evidence, or you know, uh, climbed the tree for a cat. 
you know, to figure out the cats out of the tree. Also, um, it's a rescue unit. So if somebody sees fit to say jump off that broken bridge is on the girder still standing, it's the emergency service unit that is tasked with climbing up the girder and trying to rescue that individual from him or herself. So it's a very diversified unit. So that's why we call it emergency service as opposed to SWAT. Right, exactly. You know, uh, Savage Media, thank you for the $5 super chat. Folks, if you're not subscribed to uh, Police Off the Cuff, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. We have a Patreon with three different um, levels, uh, the bucket, polish my rack, and dipped in butter. If you want to uh, contribute to us, help us keep the show going, uh, you can you can pay a fee uh, monthly. We also have a YouTube memberships designated by the folks that are in the chat with the green font, and we have six levels to that, $2.99 a month, you're the bucket. $6.99 a month, you can have coffee with Canon. $9.99 a month, you can polish my rack. $24.99 a month, you dipped in butter. And the premier one, which the premier guy, the only guy we had at that level dropped out, uh, $49.99 a month, you could be heated dipped in butter. So, folks, you know, if you if you want to contribute to us, that's the, that's how you can do it. Uh, today we have retired NYPD hostage, I, w- I should say guru, a Lieutenant Jack Cambria, who is known all over the country and all over the world is probably the best hostage negotiator, not just negotiator, but teacher of hostage negotiation. It's our thrill today to have Jack Cambria. Uh, Phil, you got anything? Uh- yeah, I, I was going to ask Jack. I was watching you on Fox yesterday as uh, this whole thing was uh, unfolded, and you were very careful, and I think this was very smart because with the technology today, you could carry a cell phone, you could pick up live TV, you could pick up cable. There's all types of things. This uh, incident was actually being streamed over Facebook. So you were careful uh, about not to say certain things about what would take place in a hostage negotiation type incident. I mean, obviously we want everybody out of there alive. Uh, the one question I had about the whole situation now, obviously you're going to be able to comment on what we would do in New York. At what point would the decision be make to have a tactical engagement? Now it looked like things kind of, uh, it looked like the, the hostages were able to escape and then there was the engagement and obviously, we don't know for sure whether he shot himself or he was shot by the police. But is there a point? Obviously, hostage negotiation in New York would be in control of what's going on uh, with the negotiation and stuff. But what, who makes the decision is really the question. At what point? Uh, obviously, things could be getting out of hand. Do you guys make the decision? Uh, it's time for a tactical engagement, or is that made by ESU? So, Phil, how it works? Um, the incident commander. For those of you. Um, listening, you might not know what the incident commander is. In New York City, at least, the incident commander is the highest ranking member from patrol services bureau that's physically on the scene and will be directing operations. So often it would be the incident commander that's gonna make that call. Based on input from the emergency service commander who's on the scene, uh, from the hostage commander who's on the scene, and then based on their own years of many, many years of experience and their observations, they will make an informed decision of how this should turn out. But in reality, um, the true incident commander is not that highest ranking member on the scene, but rather the true incident commander is the person on the other side of that door. So the hostage state of the subject, the barricaded subject. Their, their uh, behavior will dictate how this job will play out. So for example, if they're talking, they're negotiating, not hurting anybody, uh, probably 
negotiators are going to continue doing what they do, negotiate. But once that dynamic changes, they change that dynamic, now they start hurting people, killing people, then there's no longer negotiations to be had, and the capital team will go in. They'll be directed to go in. But ultimately, it would be the incident commander, um, and that's the patrol guide, our, our book of rules and procedures, the wording in that, that the highest ranking member from patrol. The reason they fix that from patrol service bureau is because it's in a, usually in the patrol precinct, always in the patrol precinct. So uh, it's usually the commander of the uh, of that precinct if he or she is working, or if not, then we have the duty captain, of course, or duty inspector, or duty chief, whoever might be working, and depending on how high that incident might be, that's how it kind of works. Well, Jack, you know, in a multi-tiered situation like this, where you got federal units on the scene, you got ATF, FBI, and then you got the local police. I mean, the local police in Colleyville, Texas, is not the NYPD. I mean, I would imagine NYPD would probably get in a sword fight with the FBI over who was in charge of this. Uh, and I'm sure that happens. Well, that's an interesting point, though. Normally, the FBI would not be involved with a hostage situation in a local jurisdiction. Right. But the, the reason they, they were, got involved with this, because I guess the word terrorist was mentioned or it was some kind of connection to Islam or this woman who's in jail for 86 years. So that's when they would come and take over the incident. You may all remember the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting uh, in Orlando, Florida, about six years ago. Yes. So I was part of the uh, police National Police Foundation's uh, national review on that. We went down to Orlando. We interviewed all the parties concerned, all the first responders, some of the victims, the hospital staff, the medical examiner. And there's a uh, rather extensive report out. Uh, anybody can access it. It's on, uh, you just have to go to the uh, National Police Foundation's website. You can Google that. And then there's a drop-down menu where it says publications, and you can find that particular publication. And with that, um, because uh, the word terrorist was mentioned, this guy Omar Martin, just to refresh everybody's memory real quick, entered into the nightclub. He killed 49 people. He shot and seriously wounded 52 others. And then he retreated into a bathroom where there were still hostages, live hostages. I think there was 11 hostages, as I recall. And at this point, the police had to look to slow it down. And it was the Orlando Police Department hostage negotiators that did the job. In fact, that we interviewed the negotiators, the main negotiator, primary negotiator as well. And it was uh, Sergeant Andy Brennan. And he was negotiating for a while. And the negotiations were basically, uh, he, Martini was just demanding that the U.S. stop their airstrikes on Iraq, Afghanistan. And that was the gist of it. But while he was talking, what he was not doing was shooting. So at this point, the police really have to kind of pump those brakes a little bit, slow it down, uh, because they can't go in. If they go in, they're going to be facing in the direction of those hostages and also Martini. And probably more likely than not, a shootout will ensue. And they'll take him out. In fact, one of the police officers at the end, when he did come out, there was a shootout. One of the police officers got shot right in the helmet, right here. The helmet saved his life. Wow. But if they would have gotten involved with a shootout, <clears throat> police bullets have gone after they hit him in the direction of those hostages. So national training dictates that when there are hostages and they're not being hurt at this moment and being held, you know, held hostage by a hostage taker, that the police will not go in because it can be result in a friendly fire situation. So I'm very interested to, uh, once, the, once the FBI is able to release all the details of what happened, I'm very interested in learning about this and maybe dissecting it a little bit so I can bring it to you know, Jack, there's there's someone in the chat, and I don't, I can't verify this 
whether it's true or not, but it sounds reasonable. His name is John Arenz. He says, I'm a retired Kaliavol cop. What happened was Rabbi Charlie had training in what to do in hostage situations. Rabbi Charlie saw an opportunity and got all the hostages out, including himself, and that's when the team moved in. I mean, that sounds reasonable. It sounds possible. We don't know if, in fact, that occurred, but the FBI probably won't tell what actually happened until you know, yeah. probably, about, probably about 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> there, there, was, there, was someone, there was someone earlier on the news and, and said that back in August that uh, that rabbi did uh, get they get, did get uh, terrorism training on hostage negotiation and stuff like that. They did go through some drills. So the person I forgot the name of the company, but the person was on the news saying we were the ones that actually did the training. So, yeah, it sounds plausible to me that uh, yeah. and I did see video of them running out. So they, they, they saw an opportunity. And I guess. At that point, once the hostages are out, it's obvious that the uh, you know that the tactical team is going to move in, and uh, I don't think there's anybody saying, "Wait, let's get word from the chief on the scene." You know, it just kind of happens, right, Jack? Yeah, yeah. And when um, usually hostage takers uh, realize that by keeping hostages alive, it's serving as kind of an insurance policy that the police will not come in. Right. So once there's no any, any no longer any hostages, then there's nothing really preventing the police from going in. First off, to make the apprehension, and then if they went in and, and if they were challenged, of course the police will do what they need to do. We're going to still determine as to whether the police killed him or he did shoot himself. That right that amount of time. So I think um, you know, uh, and I agree with you. Probably ten years from now, because that's how it was with the Pulse nightclub before they came out with any information um, <laughs> that we can use. Did they negotiate him out of the bathroom at the Pulse? No. So what happened? Uh, one of the hostages in that were inside the bathroom with him, sent a text message to a relative saying that uh, he told them he's got four bomb vests. In reality, he had no bomb vest whatsoever. But he told the hostages he's got four bomb vests. He's going to put a bomb vest on four of those hostages and send them out into the into the uh, nightclub and then detonate them. So when that came to light, uh, then uh, the police started to ramp up their actions and they became more proactive. Where they uh, they made with their bear cat, they had the ram on their bear cat. They rammed holes through the bathroom door at the same time, simultaneously deployed concussion grenades, stun devices. And at that point, he came running out. He had two weapons: he had a um, uh, AK-47 type rifle, and he had a Glock 19. And he came out like the old cowboy westerns, shooting both guns at the same time. And he lost that battle. And that's when the uh, SWAT officer from Orlando took the hit right at the helmet. Wow. We, we interviewed him as well. We have all the first responders with that. So, so you know, that's how that wound up ending up. And mostly from whatever research I've done, hostage takers uh, from, a, from a terrorist perspective, we're going there as a terrorist with a, with a mission, an ideology. They pretty much know they're not coming out alive. They kind of know that, you know. So they, they want to go out as those martyrs, you know, and uh, all that goes along with that. Right. Yeah, you know Jack Scott Wagner, uh, one of your uh, hostage negotiators. Thank you for the nine ninety nine super chat, Scott. And he wanted to say hello, and he's proud that he's a NYPD hostage, hostage negotiator, and he was trained by you. As he should be, and, and Scott was a good <laughs> negotiator. And Scott actually, uh, we came in the same class together, but I was uh, given kind of a guest seat when I was in the emergency service. And from the former commander, uh, a man by the name of Hugh McGowan, for those of you who might remember you. 
you was a big mentor to me. But Scott and I were the same class, but Scott was in the hospital team at that point, then I but I was in the emergency service. So Scott, um, when I first came to go over the team, Scott was very nice with me. He came over and, and kind of showed me around a little bit and the way it works. So hello to you, Scott. You know, Jack, I just wanted to mention something, too, that people may not think of. First of all, one of the things that emergency service does is they when when a hostage situation is in a particular building, they'll have the schematic of that building. So they know where every single person is. They may even have those cameras that go under the door that can take pictures of the positioning where everyone is. Some police departments have robots and they can send the robot in because, you know, if a robot gets damaged, it's just money. And if a human gets damaged, it's, you know, it could be killed. But yeah. there's been some pushback. Uh, the public doesn't like the police to use robots. They would rather cops get killed than robots get damaged. Yeah. You know, so some of these things, though, part of a great hostage negotiation, there has to also be a tactical element and also an investigative element. Because maybe it could have helped a little bit if the hostage negotiators uh, yesterday could have found out who his family was. Yeah. And maybe bring his family to the scene. That yeah. can that can help. And I'm not saying it was possible. I'm not Monday morning quarterbacking, but I'm sure you've done that in the past yourself. Sure, and, and we have all those those toys. I like to call them. In fact, uh, you may remember probably maybe about a year ago, we had we were experimenting with uh, something called DigiDog. It's a robot that looks like a dog. It walks on on the four legs. You know, it's got the cameras, it's got the speakers, it's got the microphones. And uh, one of our councilwomen uh, out of Queens, my daughter was too offensive to some certain communities, and she lobbied against it. And then the then mayor de Blasio, he went along with it and he canceled the, the contract on that. But it was such a great investigative tool, especially for negotiators, where they can bring this, this dog robot right up to the door and negotiate from there where police officers would be safe and would have to negotiate from the other side of that dog emergency service as well. So, but we have all those investigative techniques. And what we do also, though, usually uh, when you, you spoke about schematics, a little kind of quick impromptu blueprints of what that appointment might look like, that's usually obtained from our intelligence officer on the hostage team, who I spoke about a little bit earlier. So that'll be their position, because emergency service can't do that. They got the bunkers, they got the machine guns in their head. They can't be going around knocking on doors and getting schematics. Right. That's one of the services that we also perform for emergency service. And when time permits, um, like yesterday would have been a great example for that, um, we'll go on a lot of these real estate websites, such as Realtor.com, Zillow, uh, Redfin is another one, and there are many. And if that property has ever been on sale anyplace, those pictures, diagrams even, and pictures of the, of the actual rooms We'll be online, and we'll print those out, and we'll give those to emergency service. You know, Jack, I just know from hitting warrants inside housing projects, uh, it was a great help to know where the people were. And then also if they said there's two pit bulls in the rear room on the right, you wanted to know that, sure. you know, because pit bulls, they, they love sergeants. Sergeants taste better than almost <laughs> any other any other cop on the police department. So I didn't want to put any salt and pepper on my leg before I get in there. You know, I wanted to know where the pit bulls were. <laughs> We went out a hostage situation going on uh, in uh, in Brooklyn uh, in the sixth street precinct. It was on Avenue and around Utica Avenue, uh, and it went on for a while. And when the uh, these two individuals go in to rob the place, middle of the afternoon, they fire a shot into the ceiling to get everybody's attention. And there was a pit bull. And when the pit bull pit bull, uh, bull heard the gun go off, I never forget Daisy the pit bull was her name. She goes running into the basement. We didn't see Daisy until the afternoon was all over. 
So much for the reputation of something. And, and, and you know, Jack Pitbulls hate flesh bangs too. They oh, just yeah, yeah. now on the NYPD, you can't use a flesh bang unless the chief of department gives you permission. Yeah, there was uh, that was when I was growing up. The time that I was there, there was an incident. Uh, I can't even remember her name. Alberta, Alberta Sproul that yeah. changed the entire way the NYPD uses flesh bangs. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. For those of you who might not remember, and you can probably tell the story better than me, though, because it was in, in Manhattan North. I think it was a 2-8 precinct, as I recall. No, two five. it was a 2-5. Thank you, 2-5. And uh, they had, the emergency service was given bad intelligence from the, from the informant through the detective. And finally, uh, they hit the wrong door, and it was Alberta Sproul's apartment who had a pacemaker when they introduced a uh, flash, flash grenade because uh, they had very bad intelligence about that room that they right upon where they were supposed to go. These guys had heavy weapons and all that, so they introduced the flash grenade, came wrong upon it, and oh, Alberta Sproul had his heart condition and the pacemaker had a heart attack and died. Yeah, no, I, I reinvent I reinvestigated that with Manhattan North Homicide Squad, and the 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 um the confidential informant couldn't decide which door it was. He he was doing one of these, you know. He had no idea, and it was, uh, you know, that I don't want to get into it. That's but why really, that recon is so so important, man. That recon is very very important. Gotham you know, hit the wrong door. Phil, you're right. I used to put a Dunkin' Donuts sticker on the door yeah, that when they said it, because you know they're not going to notice it. I'll put it at the very bottom of the door, and then when yeah, they come back, that's there's wow. the door with the Dunkin' Donuts sticker because Smart. you know it, it is so easy to hit the wrong door. It really is. You know. Every apartment you door looks the, the same. Green housing project, all the doors look alike, and you get off on the wrong floor. And what we would do is, if we had informants when we were in Intel, we would actually have one of the officers on the team, whether it be myself or one of my partners, go with the informant, make sure he points out the right door, and then we would mark it, like you said, Billy. We would need to take a piece of paper and stick it in a corner or a magic marker or something, and know one hundred percent that we're going to hit the right door because. God forbid that happens. How would you feel? You know, I mean, that that's a really awful incident. And it and it changed the way, uh, you know, tactics are deployed throughout the whole police department, basically. So, uh, 100%. Phil, yeah, I just want you to do a quick read for this, and then we'll get right back. <clears throat> I got to find it, Joe Murray. All right, I'm going to have to wing it. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in the New York area and need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only a, a great trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He really knows both sides of the fence. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com, and that's that's all I got. That's all right. <laughs> Joe's, Joe's a friend of the show. He's a great attorney, and uh, we right, recommend him. If police yeah, off the cuff recommends people. him, you can count on us. You yeah, know, I recommend him as well. I know Joe. Yeah. Well. He's a great guy. So, uh, Jack, the other part was the investigative component to this. We may find out that this guy who who did this is just an EDP, is an emotionally disturbed person, and has absolutely zero ties to Al Qaeda, zero ties to being a terrorist, and zero ties to Lady Al Qaeda. But you don't know that, and you know, investigation takes time, and you know, the FBI is great at giving no information. I don't totally agree with that. Early on in the investigation, I think that's exactly the way to go. But, you know, when you ask them six months from now and they're still not answering you, then it gets a little yeah, ridiculous. You know, so, Phil, earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, when I was speaking on Fox 5, uh, again this morning, they, they reached out to me again. But last night, 
um, one of the one of the commentators said to me, "It's a little strong when he's coming back." But you know, the police are not getting giving any information. Uh, what, what's your take on that? And the answer was so simple. The take was that uh, they don't want to give out information because they have to control the media. Of course. So he's watching. Probably have multiple screens on, uh, you know, in the, in the synagogue. Probably watching all these different uh, you know, news networks and listening. And then you have the so-called, you know, subject matter experts coming on, offering their advice what they would do. Oh, really? So he's listening, and he's gathering intelligence. So that was the reason, uh, and that's why I, myself was a little cautious. You were right about that. I was very cautious about information I would give out. Uh, not that I had any inside information. I did not. But but my, what might we do in New York City? Okay, uh, that's good to know. Right. So, so that's the reason for that. And on the other side of that. At least a dozen times over my many years of doing this work, uh, 14 years uh, with the uh, hostage team uh, as the commander, probably a dozen times over those 14 years, we used the media as a negotiation tool. So they want to tell their story to the media. Okay, well, we, if I can arrange that, what are you going to do for me? And if I can get some hostages out, in fact, we did it several times, uh, and uh, we got a, a, a reporter who was kind of police friendly over the years when reporting about the police and would get him or her to the scene. And the fact we used Dean Memager one time from New York One, he's always positive about the police. We got him to the scene, he was in the Bronx, and got him into our knock, our knock is our negotiation operation center to truck. And uh, no cameras, no recording devices, just a pad, pen. Uh, we coach him, he would ask him some questions. And then when it's over and the individual comes out, he gets the exclusive. We care about that. We don't care about that. Good. You helped us out. Get the exclusive. Good for you. Uh, but we uh, also used them as a negotiation tool, you know, to help us with that endeavor. So it goes both ways. But you really, it's, it's critical to control the information that gets to the media. Because you don't know if he's, if he's working with someone else. They could be watching and then calling you know. his cell phone and giving him the information. So obviously, the least amount of uh, information that's released to the public, especially when it's ongoing, the there better. Of course, it's common there sense. Yeah, there you go. So that's it. So, you know, I like to say, uh, so the NYPD has some bragging rights as it relates to hostage negotiations. The NYPD established the very first hostage negotiation team in the entire world. It all started in the NYPD back in 1973. Um, and because of that, because we've been doing it longer than everybody else, I like to say we probably got it wrong more than everybody else because we've been doing it longer than everybody else. But by getting it wrong more than everybody else, we probably now get it right more than anybody else because we learn from our past mistakes. You know? So we just get stronger each time. Jack, would you consider the fact that they had to uh... – well, we don't know. He, the, the hostage taker could have killed himself. But if they had to shoot him, is that a negative thing for uh, – I mean, obviously, they have to do what they have to do if they go in there and he's using deadly physical force against them. But should other means have been used that maybe they didn't have to go in there? Because if, in fact, the hostages got out before the SWAT team got in, is that considered in hostage negotiation as a negative, uh, as a negative outcome? Again, because we don't know what happened, the facts there, but uh, normally how it would work, once the hostage is out, well, we still have someone there inside that a barricade now, and we're going to negotiate with him as well. We do, want, we do not, as the police, want to enter into a hostile environment. Well, we know what happens every time we go into a hostile environment and they warrant application or you know, a tactical application. 
there's a 50-50 chance at best coming out safely. And nobody likes 50-50 odds. So uh, we're going to continue the negotiation process. Um, time is on our side at this point. The hostage is out. We can relax a little bit. If he kills himself, well, so be it. It's not, you know, a result we want. But the uh, the, t- the uh, objective of not only hostage negotiators but all police officers is the preservation of life, all life, the life of the of the hostages, the life of the hostage taker, and the ho- and the life of the police. I think one of the uh, most important things that that I did as a negotiator, my whole team, Scott, who's listening now, um, one of the most critical things we did was keep emergency service officers safe. Because if we were successful in our negotiation strategy and got enabled that individual to come back to us, well, what did that mean? They don't have to go in into that hostile environment. So they might not see it that way, but uh, I can tell you their wives or husbands sitting at home waiting for them to come home, they see it that way. So that was one of the most uh, critical things I think we did to keep police officers safe. All they have to do is ask that cop from the Pulse nightclub that has the dent in his helmet. Yeah. Yeah, really. It's no fun to get shot in the head, even if you got a helmet on that prevents you from dying, right? It's uh, uh, guy's one very lucky police officer. He really is. He had a wealth on his head this big. Wow. You know, Scott Wagner uh, says we always have a debrief as soon as the job is over, no matter how long the job is. Yes, thank you. You know, Jack, that that's a good idea, Jack. Not just in hostage negotiation, but in major investigations. I used to like to do that in homicide investigations because. A lot of times, even in successful homicide investigations, I would think about, and maybe I didn't verbalize it, I would think about all the mistakes we made. Yeah. And had and but you know, you're gonna make mistakes no matter what. We're not perfect because you can't predict everything. It's a fluid situation. But I used to always think about maybe if we went over it and talked about why did we make this mistake, what we won't make it in the future. No, I think it's critical when you do that, because uh, we learn from our mistakes and we don't wanna be victims of going back to that same mistake. And also on the other side of it, revisiting what has been successful for you. If we like that, we should revisit that and keep that as part of our maybe protocols. Maybe we shouldn't do that again uh, on the other side of it because that didn't work. So yeah, I think uh, you learn from your mistakes. We, we should at least. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his exact name. Dom to you, PSO. Gentleman Jack Cambia. Oh one, of the, one of the kindest, humble, competent police commanders you will ever meet. So, Jack, you got some fans in this chat here. Which you, is, uh, I'm not sure exactly who it is because the last name's not there. But, but thank you, Dom. I appreciate you. It's very kind. You know, is gentleman Jack. That name fits. That's for sure. That, that's yeah, right. You, you know, I cannot begin to tell you how many bottles of the gentleman Jack uh, whiskey I used to get for Christmas from, uh, from my friends and negotiators over the years. So. You'll ne- you'll never hear anyone say gentleman Bill. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never hear that said anywhere in the police department but that's hey we can all be we can bitching all be like bill, they might say uh, bitching with bill. bill you know yeah exactly they may they might say that you know jack part of the investigation too like i always used to think about this also in homicide investigation is like once you make the arrest or once you, it's over people don't realize the investigation is not over it's still you have so much more work to do and in this hostage situation, they have a ton of work to do, mostly with the on the background of the individual that took the hostages. They want to find out every single possible thing they can know about him. They want to find out, you know, like Phil did earlier, the timeline. What exactly did he come in? How long has he been going to that, that uh, temple? Apparently, he's been there before. They know the guy. 
You know, who does he know? Who is he friendly with? You know, they, they need to talk to his family, talk to, I don't know if he has a job, if he does have a job, interview his form, his fellow employees. So yeah. the investigation is not over once this, the whole situation is over. Yeah. Martin, at the Pulse nightclub, he, he uh, surveilled that place. Uh, as a matter of fact, an hour before he did the shooting, he was in there on video going in. He paid his ticket. He had one of those uh, wristbands they put on you. He, uh, he stood for, I think it was 13 minutes. I just got He was looking around, surveilling. Uh, the officer that had the uh, extra duty, that's now a job, and it's the uh, off-duty work that we do, uh, who's uh, assigned to the post, he said he recognized him. He's seen him before on prior occasions. So he's been there before. So it kind of plays into what you're saying here with this guy that he's been there before. Sort of like recon. They were recon in the location. I, I heard a story that um, the the rabbi that was uh, being held as hostage had actually given him tea. He Apparently he was homeless or something, this guy that... Uh, that took the hostages and he had offered him tea or something like that. And then when he came in ranting, he, I guess he pulled the gun and uh, we had the situation yesterday. So yeah, he was known to them apparently. So the tea was a previous film. You know? Yes. Previously he had, apparently when he came to, uh, they were saying he was an English, an English citizen, but apparently one of the listeners said he's not, but wherever he was, he apparently spent some time, uh, in a, uh, a homeless shelter close by to the synagogue. And he, I guess they must have either they reached out to the local uh, homeless shelter or uh, maybe mm -hmm. he was directed towards them. And they gave him, I guess they gave him a meal. They gave him some tea was one of the stories. Again, these are all unconfirmed stories, but it's, it appears he was known to the people at the, uh, at the synagogue, specifically the rabbi um, before the incident uh, unfolded yesterday. Yeah. yeah, apparently he was ranting about that he had nothing against Jews, that they took care of him, they gave him tea, and, they, you know, right. so it wasn't, again, like an anti-Semitic type thing. Yeah. It, this this appears to be, and appears uh, to be more like an EDP thing. That, uh, now, you know, there's something, uh, might, maybe a lot of you heard of the term Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, the Stockholm Syndrome is when the captors develop admiration towards the captive, towards the hostage taker. Uh, it's a psychological phenomenon where they feel that uh, they are depending on this individual for their mere survival. In fact, they come to a point where they trust the hostage more than they do the police. They're concerned that the police come in, they're going to shoot at, they may be killed. So they're depending on this individual for their mere survival. Uh, and it usually develops over time. It's not something you're going to see in a short-term negotiation, but in the hours as of yesterday, when it starts getting to the 10, 11, 12 hours, uh, then that's when it starts to develop. There's something also known as the Lima um, uh, syndrome. So the Stockholm syndrome was first discovered in Stockholm, Sweden, thus the name. Uh, the Lima syndrome, which was discovered in Lima, Peru, where these uh, individuals went into a the uh, uh, Japanese ambassador, Japanese ambassador's home. They're having a big party to take it over. A big, you know, it was, was going to be a big hostage thing. And over a period of time, the captives started developing admiration for the hostages. So it's kind of the reverse Stockholm syndrome, if you're, if you're following me. And as a result, they let the hostages go on their own. You know, the police were there. They just let them go. You know, they surrendered and all that. So, so I don't know if that was starting to develop here. It sounds like a little bit on the reverse side that he was developing admiration towards the hostages yesterday. Uh, maybe that's why he let this one individual go. or He appreciated maybe at one point that he got... The tea uh, in the past, maybe that he got pizza yesterday from the, you know, from the police. So again, but we don't know. 
maybe he was at EVP uh, and or he wanted his 15 minutes of fame. It does sound like there was some level of comfortableness between the, the hostages and the hostage taker that yeah. they were able to get into an area to escape. So there must have been, you know, it wasn't like he was holding them at gunpoint or else, you know, he may have started shooting, you know. So there must have been uh, he, maybe the, the rabbi himself was trying to use some negotiation tactics himself. Uh, you know, listen, you know, you have a family or whatever. Who knows what was being said? But it does sound like there was a level of trust that they got that opportunity to escape. So I agree with you on that, Jack. I think there was. Yeah, uh, I, I think of, yeah maybe that Lima syndrome was was uh, was yeah, taken. Yeah, it was with him. So we don't know. Yeah. You, you know, Jack, someone had asked uh, in the chat about um, using a kind of uh, a gas or something to put people to sleep. But I remember years ago, there was this hundreds of hostages taken by Chechen rebels in a theater, in a theater. Yeah. And and it was going on for days and weeks and it was just brutal. And someone came up with some kind of idea to use some kind of drug. But if you didn't administer the antidote, with exactly. in a very fair, a timely thing, people would just suffocate to death, and that's yeah. what happened. Hundreds of people died because they couldn't administer the antidote quickly enough yeah. to the hostages. Yeah, and the other issue with that, uh, so 850 theater goes, the Moscow theater, um, as you said, 50 Chestnian terrorists, uh, including women, all strapped with bomb vests, entered into the theater. They wanted the uh, uh, Chestnians who were in Russian jails to all be released. That was their purpose for doing that. And after three, it was a three-day event, and uh, the on that third day, the Russian special forces decide that they're going to introduce that gas, which is a fentanyl. We don't know about fentanyl, right? Mixed it with heroin. Fentanyl is a uh, is a drug that's used in, as as an anesthetic when you're going into surgery, so it's a controlled substance. So they introduced it into the air conditioning vents, and as a result of that, 179 people were killed, and and a lot of those were young children, because they didn't consider body weight when you administer an anesthetic, you know, an anesthetic drug. And a lot of them were killed with that. Also, as you said, uh, there was a very poor triage where some were getting that anecdote, some were not. They didn't have enough ambulances. They were just throwing people on buses to get them to the hospital, just throwing them on the ground. And they were vomiting, choking on their own vomit. So there's a lot of, a lot of problems with that. But we learned from that as well, that we can't introduce gas. And if you introduce gas and a hostage guy say COPD, a breathing problem, you're going to kill them. You're going to kill them. You're going to right? So it's not a recommended approach. I never say never. You know, I never say never. But the NYPD hasn't used it in years now. Um, probably even before I went into emergency service, they stopped using it because there were some tragedies with that as well, people dying as a result of police actions. But, uh, you know, it's still in the arsenal. You know, so again, never say never. If the right. could present itself. Amazing. No. So, is, is there anything that is new? Uh, any new techniques in the hostage negotiation field, or is it still an old field that uses psychological means to talk to people? I mean, I know you said that you should never lie to a hostage uh, well, taker. If you if you're going to lie, don't lie stupidly. Don't lie so they can. Uh, with, with information that's available and how people check you out with this. Right, right. You have the world at your fingertips on your cell phone these days with internet access. So if you're going to lie, don't lie stupidly where in, people can immediately, immediately access and check you out uh, with the gate. So, you know, a real quick example of, um, 
I want to say 2003, we had an individual in, in the, the 113 precinct in Jamaica, Queens, who was holding his four, four month old baby hostage. And he had just shot and killed the grandmother. Um, she wasn't dead when she was removed from the scene. She was able to get out of the house. He shot three people, actually. They were able to stumble out of the house. The neighbors called the police. They were taken off to the hospital. So um, after a period of time, while we're negotiating with him now, and he had other hostages in the house as well, besides his former old baby, um, he asked, what happened to the people I shot? And we had known that the grandmother had expired. But we didn't want to tell him that. We were trying to make a weak case into a strong case. You know, it's not so bad yet. Nobody was killed. Right, right. That was the strategy we were trying to use. But we knew he did not have access to that to that lie. So we had already detectives at the hospital. So he wasn't able to uh, access that information by calling the hospital. Hey, what happened to my that woman? You know, not going to tell her that she died. So that was a lie that was, I guess, somewhat safe to tell. But uh, we try not to lie. We're trained not to lie. Because the problem with lying, of course, is you never know what information the other party has available. And here you come along trying to sell a bill of goods when the fact is they know better. That could right. blow the whole thing up. Yeah. What, what happened, Phil, do you think? If you have caught in a lie, say, after five hours of intensive negotiations, now you're caught in a lie. Right. Gone. Like, uh, you lose all credibility. And that's start with another negotiator, probably. And that's if they want to talk to the police at all. People love to paint with a broad brush when it comes to the police. Use the plural sense. You cops are all liars. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Not the one cop that lied, but now you cops. So it causes us uh, some great problems when we, when we do that. So we try not to do that. Absolutely. You know, this, this incident also got uh, national and international coverage because of yeah. the fact that it was at a synagogue, the fact that the word terrorism was used. I believe yeah. uh, President Biden said that the this yeah. is an act of terrorism. I don't know um, if, in fact, it is, but uh, he used that word terrorism. Yeah. So it got all kinds of attention. Israel um, on it? Yeah, sure. The Prime yeah. Minister of Israel was monitoring it. Actually, he tweeted out uh, that he was watching it very closely and hoping for the safety of the hostages and all that. So, yeah, yeah. definitely an international incident. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you're not going to see, um, you know, the president commenting on something that happened in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, right? Uh, there's a right. hostage situation, uh, domestic or, or you know, something like that. But because you're right, there's a synagogue that takes on that special connotation attached to it, you know, uh, the fact that the word terrorism was mentioned. So now... It opened up to the whole world. So, yeah, it, it actually put uh, a lot of the uh, throughout the United States, a lot of the uh, religious locations on alert. I believe they said at one point that he called a rabbi in New York and said that there were bombs at the location. So that obviously uh, put everybody in New York on high alert. All the yeah. religious locations. So, yeah. uh, and I guess it spread throughout the country, which is obviously a, a good tactic to take when you you don't know what you're dealing with. It's such a it was a fluid situation, and they were talking about. About initially that it was the brother of uh, Afia Siddiqui. It turned out he wasn't related to her. He just had this religious cause and, uh, you know, uh, he was doing what he was doing. But at the time, I guess, you know, when things are fluid and you don't know for sure, you got to uh, err on the side of caution. Yeah, yeah. This guy, Martin, did the same thing with the post nightclub and negotiating with him. He told the sergeant that he's got bombs planted in vehicles around the building and he's going to detonate them. So now that's, again, that's another added thing that the police have to deal with and sure. try to figure this stuff out, you know? So uh, there was not, you know, there wasn't any bombs. As same thing here, you know, he put that out there, but, you know, it's just to, I think, keep the police off kilter and kind of, you know, keep them scrambling a little bit. 
Jack, as being a uh, a teacher of hostage negotiation as well as a student, do you stud do you study hostage situations on an international level so you can learn uh, things from those instances that you might not have seen yourself? I do. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I'm anxious to see if I, I have some maybe some contacts I can try to get some information about this job when, when it becomes available. But uh, to use it as a teaching tool to negotiate. So. We learn through example uh, and by case studies, case reviews of lessons learned and things we mentioned a little earlier, things that we didn't like, things that we liked, and what worked for the police. So we can replicate those, you know, in the future. So, but I do, if I see something going on across the, the country, across the internationally as well, study it. So now I research it, you know, internet access. So sure, absolutely. Folks, yeah. this, is, uh, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Our guest tonight is a retired NYPD Lieutenant Jack Cambria, one of the uh, most experienced hostage negotiators probably in the world. He uh-huh. teaches he teaches all over the United States. He, st- he still studies host- hostage negotiation so he can keep his game up there because you never know. Could be a young upstart, a cocky guy from another police department trying to Not knock him. trying to knock Jack off his perch. We don't want that to happen, right? So right. he's staying he's staying with it and. Uh, was so thrilled that he came on the show today and I, with no notice i called him and he said sure I'll, i could come on at five o'clock uh phil you got any last words yeah last words obviously as a police officer we take an oath to protect life and property and i know that jack going into any hostage negotiation his yeah. goal his mission is not only for the hostages the hostage taker as well they don't want any loss of life Jack, I want to point out one thing you said early on, that when you go to your training seminars, that if somebody gives you uh, a piece of information, you're not shutting down. You're the big shot hostage negotiator. No, you're going to take any information. You called it a gem, and I think that shows where you get the name Gentleman Jack from. There's never uh, – you learn something new every day, as they say, and in all the situations that go on throughout the country, if we could learn a little tidbit here and a little tidbit there and put it to good use, I think that uh, that shows your professionalism, Jack. Thank you for coming on today, and I think we're going to learn something from this particular case as we would in any other case. For sure, indeed. And just to close that out, just to play on your point, Phil, I I don't believe there's any true experts in any field because true experts assume that you have all the answers. And uh, I don't have all the answers. I know probably know what all the questions are. I've heard them all over the years. But again, each uh, each negotiation is tailor-made for that individual because no two problems are ever exactly alike. So... But I do appreciate you saying that. And both Folks, thank you so much for listening in. This is a Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. On behalf of myself, Bill Cannon, Phil Grimaldi, and retired NYPD Lieutenant Jack Cambria, have a great night and stay safe. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you.